Welcome back to Sheep Stuff You Should Know. It's actually all three of your favorite Sheep Stuff people, at least two of your favorite Sheep Stuff people, and I'm here too. Uh, this is Dan Macon, and we're coming to you today, the first time ever, from the Cooperative Extension Office in beautiful downtown Yuba City. And I've got Dr. Rosie Bush and Ryan Mahoney are in the house. Hello. And uh, how are you guys? So good. It's so much fun driving in the fog all the way up here. But no, we're doing good. Doing good. Yeah, it was like old stomping grounds coming up 113 North. It's like, man, I miss this drive. <laughs> I don't miss driving in the fog. That much, I feel though. like I, I feel like we when I was a kid growing up, it was always foggy. And I feel like this is such a more normal yeah. year of just being, you know, socked in with fog for Two weeks straight, three weeks straight, at least growing up in the Delta. That's what we always liked about being in the foothills and back way back in the old times, you know, because we could look down on you people socked <laughs> in in the pea soup here in the valley and just enjoy the sunshine. But it was freezing fog in Auburn this morning when I left, which was really pleasant. Describe that. Describe, describe that for us. So it's foggy yeah. and it was freezing. So yeah, it's it's like 32 degrees and foggy, so everything's covered with a little bit of ice, and you walk outside and suck that cold air into your lungs, and that feels really nice. Um, it's term for it is pogo nip, which is a, a Native American word, meaning all your calves will die if they breathe this. I think is is what the word <laughs> means. It's not good for livestock. Yeah, what do, what do I have to look forward to tomorrow? Rosie. After this weather. After this wonderful <laughs> weather, yes. We're going to need to just get the antibiotics out. and. It depends. Yeah. I feel like it's the swings in temperatures that really are hard for them because they don't have any chance to acclimate. But it's been so cold for so long, so hopefully this won't hit them as hard. Yeah. we. I've noticed in some of our calves, it's very bunch dependent, but some of them are showing a little more signs of pneumonia than others. Yeah. But I think it's kind of just the swings. Do you see any grass tetany yet with all this this foggy weather? That'll be later in the spring, right? Yeah, nothing yet. It's it's um, it's been too cold to grow any volume, and so they really can't ingest a large amount of fresh grown feed because there isn't a lot of fresh grown feed out there. Um, what feeds there is pretty strong though. The 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 ewes and lambs look really good. Um, they're able to kind of get down into it and uh, kill that plant, eat it down to the roots, just like you like, Dan. Um, and <laughs> but the cat, the cattle that we're still feeding a bunch, we're probably feeding more now than we have all year. Yeah. And the tetany is from the washy feed, right? So like when it grow comes up really fast. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Our feed is actually what has come up is pretty washy, but mm. it, uh, not enough, <coughs> not enough of it yeah. to be a problem at this point. Mm. We're just happy to have some green underneath all the dry. Yeah. It's good. What's going on in Davis? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have been out for a week, man. And But, no, we had a meeting on Friday. I did come back for that, and I wore a mask because I didn't want to get anyone else sick. But um, we had a meeting to really try to brainstorm and do some actionable um, things to try to make steps and progress towards the food animal vet shortage. Um, we know it's a multifaceted issue, yeah. but really trying to focus on things we can do to recruit more, to um, really grow and maintain that interest while they are in school and then retain them once they're out. And so really looking, we kind of we brought in a lot of practitioners um, and all the livestock vets in the university were there and had a big brainstorming session and it was really good. It was all day and it was intense, but it was, I think, productive and Cool. Yeah. I know just in our little corner of Placer in Nevada um, that that the most of the large animal vets are all kind of of the same generation. Mm -hmm. and it's a generation yeah. that's getting pretty close to retirement age. At least that's what my wife tells me. Yeah. She's getting pretty close <laughs> to retirement age. Um, but it's, it's going to leave a big gap when they all retire. Yeah. Yeah. And we are seeing a swing in demographics. So um, a lot of the younger vets 
don't necessarily want to take as much on call um, as is traditionally done, which, you know, I think in the last 20 years, there has been a move towards more bigger practices with multiple vets to be able to share call. Um, but that requires enough clientele to be able to hire that many vets. So it would be really region dependent yeah. and population dependent. We are pretty lucky in California. We have a pretty high population with high livestock density. So California can support those types of practices, probably more so than like in the Midwest. Where right. That would be harder to find. And I would, I would suspect in kind of the intermountain states where, where towns are a little further apart mm-hmm. that it's tough to yeah. have that critical yeah. mass too. AVMA was talking about doing an interesting study looking at the economic benefits or the societal benefits of having veterinarians in these small towns and what they bring to... <laughs> Speak into the microphone, I, <laughs> I don't want to get snot on the... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you could just have that designated mic the whole <laughs> time. Dan good. and I will switch, but... <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Noted, but yeah. I've taken LA 200 this morning. Oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Oh, good. Yeah. So today we got a special episode. Why is it I'm changing special? the. Well, it's special because we're all here, <laughs> but this is the long-awaited listener question one, and uh, you got the list. We've been we've got quite a few questions. We'll probably um, fill. Don't worry, I'll ask that one. <laughs> um, I appreciate you writing all of the questions in clear, legible handwriting, unlike me who wrote one question in illegible handwriting, <laughs> but I totally know what it says. <laughs> no. no. We already w- established that. Even one. worse. Even worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My dad is a pharmacist and has had to read mu- a lot of illegible prescription tests. Oh, that's good. <laughs> it's like, these are very important and I can't read them. No, he's good at deciphering what it's supposed to say. But <laughs> well, good. It's, it's true. It's a thing. Well, what do you think? You want to just go ahead? You got some you want to ask and just jump into them or? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think this the first one that came in was pretty interesting. Um, so the first one was, how can you keep track of individual performance in a bigger flock with more than 10 rams? Well, I have 104 rams. <laughs> and so I guess I'll ask that, answer that question. Um it's challenge. It's a challenge to track individual performance in a large scale, um, and I think it for for me, we always look at it as we want. We don't necessarily want to track everything about every individual animal. We want to track specific things about individuals. So, we want to know fertility about the ewes. We can track individual fertility records on individual animals through the use of EIDs. Um, It's really pretty much impossible without EIDs. You could technically maybe do it with visual ID tags and a handwritten book and about 147,000 yellow tab notebooks. Um, But the, the, the software computer systems that allow you to manage that data and along with the EIDs themselves, they allow you to track specific traits. Um, it does take time, and so the more traits you're tracking, the more time you need to spend on your computer tracking all those things. So it's very much about identifying what are those um, motivating factors that you want to track to improve your flock. It, it, you know, do you, are you looking at fertility? Are you looking at foot health? Are you looking at wool quality? Are you looking at disposition? Are you looking at frame size? Like what, there's so many different things to look at and that's what makes us fun is we can all look at different things, but, um, definitely you'd have to do it with the IDs and, and just try not to track everything. And I know people are doing similar things on individual, I mean, not similar things. They are keeping individual information like on the U. So by based on markings, whether that's like clipping ear notches certain ways or clipping the tag a certain way or certain colors like there are ways to keep individual data visually on the you but what's lacking with that is the ability to look at what your flock is doing and having that information kind of all in one place where you can look at what your trends are over time you know that's when we started using the easy care lambing system where we were looking at maternal ability, <coughs> um, we, we started by using just ear notches or, or notching tags if a ewe didn't measure up. So it was a way to kind of visually track who we didn't want to keep. 
Um, I did want to mention, too, we, we were all three part of a study that Davis did um, right. that looked at EID tags, but also using some genetic information, um, which is pretty expensive at a commercial scale. But it did allow us to identify some things with RAMs in larger scale operations that I think, um, while it's not possible to, to track that on a commercial sense, it's pretty interesting to know that you know, 20% of the RAMs were breeding 80% of the ewes, roughly, in most operations. Yeah. Um, and so understanding that will help, will help some of that as well. <clears throat> Um, yes, uh, Flock 54 tests, there's different genetic tests that you can use. I forgot to say that. So you could take the lambs and sire them and match them back. You have to, but you have to use the ID tags. Right. You can't do it without Absolutely. those. Um, but I did want to say, have you guys seen any study, or I wanted to ask, is, have you guys seen any studies where they look at that ram where 80% of the lambs are sired by 20% of the, sorry, 80% of the lambs with an L? are sired by 20% of the rams with an R. Uh, have, has there been any multi-year studies? Um, because from what I've learned is a lot of times those younger rams don't breed many, and then that, uh, you know, one, two, three years into a system, then they end up moving into that 20%. I okay. do remember Wit saying something like once they get to their second or third year, whatever their... Um, Oh, goodness. Breed, breeding behavior is at that point, they will tend to stick with that by the time they're two or three. So like you said, their first year, that may not be a good representation of their actual libido. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> but by the time they're two or three, they may be a low libido ram and stay that way. And you just might not know that unless you're marking or tracking with parentage. I don't know that anybody's I haven't read anything about looking at it multiple years with the same rams I, I did talk to a producer in Australia who had developed his own little system with his electronic ear tags that allowed them they didn't do any kind of maternal tracking at birth but they had readers at water troughs and an algorithm written where these tags came in with this tag almost every time so these must be that used lambs and they were able to set up some maternal tracking just by scanning the ear tags um, at, at water troughs, which I thought was an interesting approach yeah. on a large scale. You're talking, you're talking pairing the lambs to the use. Yeah. So Sapien's got a really cool little thing. You basically build a little, um, basically you fence the water trough and leave a gap and then put a little panorator yeah. right by it. And then through the data of the two, three days that they're in that field, um, they can pair up like something like 95% of the, the, the ewes without having to pair them uh, with the wand at birth. That's cool. Yeah, it's super cool tech. tech. Yeah, it's got me saying tech, saying, me saying these cool words, so <laughs> it means it is super cool. <laughs> and rams with an R and, and lambs with an L. That's yes. also impressive. Uh -oh. Also impressive. <laughs> I think it's time to go to the next question. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. <laughs> question. How do I sell lambs that are just too small? Um, there was a short breed of ram, and all the lambs turned out little. Take them to the auction. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I said take them to the auction. No, uh, that, that's a good question. Um, selling your bottom ends is, or, or marketing your bottom ends is probably the most important thing you can do. Everybody can sell a good lamb. It's harder to sell those bottom ends. Um, that's where it's fun to get creative. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do it. There's markets for all sorts of different things. Um, you know, the easiest way to, to offload them is to literally take them to a sale barn. Um, you, you know, they, they have buyers for everything at those places, and, and they will sell it. It might not sell for very much money. Um, but a dollar in your pocket's worth zero in the field. So it just really depends on your situation and what you're looking for. But, um, you know, small lambs like that, that's, that's where you really get a chance to kind of get crafty and, and, um, you know, I mean, heck, start a petting zoo business <laughs> or all sorts of different things. You know, it's, that's, that's kind of where you can take your opportunities. So Dan, I, I think the other piece of that, um, and this is kind of scale dependent, but even at our small scale, you know, we'll have a half dozen to a dozen 
tail enders that that aren't big enough to do our normal marketing with and i try to kind of save those up till i've got a load of coal use and other stuff that needs to go to the sale barn because it's you know it's 110 miles each way to our closest sale barn um and that way I spread the freight out over more of them. I do like the the petting zoo idea with with bottle lamps in particular. It's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy what people pay for petting zoo like business. It's man, like I, I was talking to some buddies that paid like six hundred bucks an hour to have a handful of chickens and yeah, probably not chickens, but oh, wow. you know have a have a <laughs> couple of sheep yeah. and some goats. It was just like oh my goodness, it's crazy. That's you great. got their number. I know, <laughs> I know, right? I, I'm, I'm rethinking my my bummerland program here. I'm trying to get them and sell them commercial. I gotta see, sort those off and make a first class petting zoo. <laughs> <laughs> you could, you could. What's the next question? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'll be the next podcast. So the finances many of petting zoos. Personal issues with petting zoos. That's <laughs> yeah, the, the, the vet is squirming. <laughs> all right the third question is for me um uh, or you guys can answer it but we will will. (laughs) i'm sure (laughs) please um okay is a selenium injection safe or recommended for use prior to breeding if so when this is the quintessential cooperative extension answer it totally depends (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) because a lot of it really is because Nutrition is so region dependent. So if you're in Colorado, selenium, you're probably reaching toxic levels of selenium there. Uh, Depends on where your feed comes from. And then even within deficient areas, there the for whatever reason, I don't know this because I'm not a plant person, (laughs) but the plant's either ability or whatever makes it express or take up selenium varies from year to year. Um, so in, a, you know, I d- it's pretty hard to predict what your selenium uh, levels are going to be. If so, that said, the best way to get selenium into animals is to have it in their diet, whether it's what they're foraging on or if it's in a supplement, if their forage is deficient. Um, Animals that are or have enough selenium in their diet would not benefit from a selenium injection before breeding. I wasn't able to find. I did a little bit of free. <laughs> surprise, Imagine surprise. That. She did some research. <laughs> I didn't find any evidence to suggest that if an animal was sufficient in selenium, that a boost in selenium before breeding or even before lambing would actually help anything. Um, where you do get into issues is if they're deficient, that getting them up to a sufficient level can actually help with uh, conception rates and even um, reducing white muscle disease in lambs, which is selenium deficiency in the lamb after they're born. Um, so it can help if you are deficient, if for whatever reason the you know you realized your supplement didn't have the level of selenium you thought it did. Um, it Injections can help get them up to that level, but really they need to be on a diet that has a good level of selenium. How long does that injection boost um, last? It's like taking a vitamin. I mean, it'll get you. Yeah, it's pretty short term. It goes, it peaks and then it immediately goes down. So how would you determine what your selenium levels are prior to ram turn in? Um, so they're purple top. It's a blood test that can be done. It's whole blood. So a purple top tube. Um, and I think it's like $15 or something. So you could bleed a certain percentage of the use. Yeah. We've used injectable selenium at lambing time. If we happen to see, you know, retained placentas or, um, weak lambs or Mm -hmm. something like Mm -hmm. that. Um, we did blood test when we, we knew we had a problem several years ago. But now we just kind of look at whatever we send into the lab for a necropsy. We look at, at what comes back on yeah. some of those used. They you know? started using BOCI at birth for the lambs at Hopland. And s- after doing that, like their newborn lamb pneumonia went down by a ton. And like issues that they didn't have related to selenium deficiency in their mind went away. 
So it's kind of impressive what a simple little mineral <laughs> can do. But it sounds like you need to kind of know what you're dealing with before you start incorporating yeah. it. So you got to really look Especially at the injections, yeah. Come up with some kind of baseline so that way you can kind of anecdotally justify the yeah. medicine. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. That was that. Um, if you weren't, I like this question. If you weren't in the job you are in now, what profession outside of ag would you choose? Well, I had a, I had an opportunity to, um, to promote up <laughs> into assistant manager at beverages and more known as nice. Bevmo <laughs> store before I left to join the ranch. Um, I was a passionate, passionate connoisseur of microbrews and whiskeys, um, I, I don't really drink anymore. I, I do some. I love a glass of whiskey. But uh, back, that was in the college days, and I was pretty... You were studying. I was pretty good at that job. Yeah, I was very good at that job. <laughs> um, so that would have been one. Um, I'd always kind of had a... You know, I'd always, I always kind of wanted to go back to school. Like, if I had to leave, my kind of backup plan was to go to school and try to get a vet degree. Um and then uh, outside of that, I, I don't know. Uh, I, this is the only thing I could see myself doing right now. Major League Baseball. Yes. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. You know, with, with my ability to hit the curveball. Pitcher? Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah? No. Corner outfielder. Yeah. Me and Aaron Judge. I'm built much like Aaron Judge. I'm, you know, 6'9". Small strike zone. <laughs> For those of you who can't hear, I just got accused of having a small strike zone. Good thing this is a podcast and not video. <laughs> it's hard to hit. You make some balls percentage. <laughs> I, in all reality, um, that's a really good question. I was an auctioneer for a while. I cool. could see myself doing that again. That's awesome. I could be a logger, like working <clears throat> in the woods. I could be a Bevmo assistant manager. Yeah. Yeah. I've been studying for that one. Yeah. I, I've always said if I went to a different form of medicine, I'd want to be a gynecologist because I think it's just so cool. Bringing babies into the world, um, keeping mamas healthy. Um, and <laughs> but if I chose something other than medicine, I've been, I've been told a lot recently that I need to open a bakery. So <laughs> and I've always wanted to do that. So I always thought it'd be neat to have a bakery in the front and a vet clinic in the back, but I don't think that was... <laughs> Be super food kosher approved. We could we could bring the whiskey for the bakery. Perfect. We could have a bar, bakery, and vet clinic all in one. Perfect. <laughs> Sell bootleg whiskey out the middle there. <laughs> you know, here, here you go. Oh, that's funny. That's a good question. Yeah, that was good. I worked in restaurants growing up. I always kind of wanted to work in the food business somehow. Yeah, I like food. I would do food. Yeah. I have to tell a story on my dad. When I was in uh, high school, he thought it'd be good for me to learn some other jobs. So he, he farmed me out to an electrician one day, which was really fun because it was about 28 degrees in Sonora, and I was crawling around under houses oh shoving wire up through the subfloor. <laughs> Decided that probably wasn't what I wanted to do. And then at one point, my dad was trying to fix the kitchen sink, and he yells at me to come in the kitchen. Yeah, Dad? And he said... When you get older, make enough money to hire a damn plumber. <laughs> All right. This one's for you, Dan. <laughs> Why did you switch from hair sheep to mules, and was it worth it? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Good question. So we started out, <laughs> actually, we started out with Barbados, mm -hmm. which are not really sheep. <laughs> I think they're like a cross between deer and goats. Yeah. Um, and then we had Dorpers for a while. And we switched primarily because um, we were having lots of issues with feet in the Dorpers, with white-footed sheep in our, in our environment, mm -hmm. lots of foot rot and lots of scald. And um, did some research about white-faced wool sheep with black feet and um, potential for them to have some foot rot resistance and resilience. And so... We switched to uh, Cooperth and North Country Cheviot ewes crossed with a blue-faced Leicester ram to get our mules, our initial mules. 
and um, they seemed to fit our environment pretty well, and we really were able to clean up the foot rot issues in just a couple of generations using that kind of cross. I think if I were to stop and look at how much it cost us to trim feet and give foot vacs versus how much it costs to get the wool off, how much it costs for shearing, that we're dollars ahead shearing the sheep and not trimming feet as much. But cool. Good question. Yeah. Is there, is the, the correlation between black-footed sheep and foot rot resistance, is that because of the, like, something in the genetics of a black-hoofed animal, or is it the um, display of crossbred genetic? Is it just the heterosis from the crossbreeding and often when you see a black-footed sheep, it's, it has some kind of crossbred in it. It's a question for you, <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Rosie Bush. I don't know. I think, I mean, heterosis is always a good thing for the immune system because then it just means it has that much more capacity for finding pathogens and things like that from as far as the innate immune system goes. So that's probably more... Why? I, I wonder, too, if it has to do with where those breeds evolved. Mm -hmm. So if you think about kind of the Rambouillet Merino um, having evolved in a little bit drier climate mm -hmm. versus some of the black-footed English breeds that are in a wetter climate, mm -hmm. I would suspect that there was historical selection pressure for foot health in those breeds that had to be in, in a wetter climate mm -hmm. um, for more of their lives. And I, I also wonder, it seems, at least with the Dorper sheep that we had, that their feet grew a lot faster. And I don't know if that's because they were lame all the time and they didn't wear them off. Um, but those white-hooved animals, white hooves seem to grow a lot faster and require more trimming than the black, to black hooves for the most part. Because, like, goat feet or their hooves grow a lot faster than most sheep breeds. So it's interesting. Because I've had, I've had some terrible foot rot Suffolk use and i've had terrible foot rot like we like black footed ram like black uh mm -hmm. ramblays or um you seem to just get some terrible terrible infections in there but whenever you get that crossbreeding th those are the hardiest mm -hmm. and you know that 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 color genetic is tends to be a dominant gene and so it mm -hmm. displays more color in the animal in general and so i've but mm -hmm. I, I like I like the theory of the the Water, wetter climates yeah. and the the evolution of breeds. It's probably both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're an extension office. It, it depends. Depends on both. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe. And maybe. <laughs> I don't know, but I'll get back. To that. Yes. I will find out. I who haven't does. done the research. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Next question. What's the next question? <laughs> How do you use herding dogs with low stress handling? That's a good question. I'm, I think both of us should answer yeah, this. Um, I think part of it for me is first knowing what low stress looks like and feels like and, and then helping the dog understand that too. Um, part of it's dog genetics probably. And then I think it's really easy to be high stress with a dog too. We've all, at least I've done it. I've, I've gotten totally stressed out at my dogs, which really makes them respond well and positively. Um, I, think, I think they can be an extension of a low stress handling system or they can be um, detrimental depending on kind of how they're used and, and how you approach stock handling generally. Ryan, what about you? What's your experience? Um, I, I don't, I mean, yeah, I think you said it when you said a dog is um, part of a low-stress environment. I, I think um, depends on your systems, corrals, fields, gates, all those kind of things all play into it. Um, a dog is uh, incredibly important uh, in moving animals, you know, safely and, and, and um, yeah, I think it really depends on the handler, depends on the dog, Um but once you, it's, I, I don't know. I mean, there, there's a, whenever you make an animal do something, it's, it's doing something it didn't want to do or didn't prefer to do. Um, it doesn't mean it's stressed out, but it means that there, you know, that could be defined as stress yeah, and pressure applied, pressure applied. And like you put a dog on a ground, it doesn't matter what that dog's doing. There's stress 
in, in and so you know there's no I know there's no such thing as no stress handling it has to be you know handled and, and managed properly and so a dog is a very important part of that because it can make a it can make a job safer for the people and the sheep and that's kind of really where it comes down to is mm-hmm. um, the health and well-being of the animal and the handlers and if that's being done well then you're doing okay and you do have a training time too and um, I think probably that's probably the highest stress on a sheep is during the training of a dog mm-hmm. um, because that dog almost has to make a mistake in order to be corrected and so I, I don't know that's that's me I mean, we don't do it perfect at all we're like nowhere near perfect at our place nobody is <laughs> neither are we uh, one thing i do want to pick up on that you said though is is it's not no stress and i think that's something that takes experience to understand what makes this what makes low stress work is the ability to stress and then remove that stress to reward good decisions whether it's a dog or a you you know, if, if they're doing the right thing and... They're both learning. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's kind of the the key to the whole system. I was at a ranch recently that had a, a young dog that was working really well with a group of sheep. But then one sheep was out. And when it was just one dog and one sheep, the dog, rather than coming around and bringing it back, wanted to just run after it. And the dog's name was Pickle. <laughs> the owner was, Pickle, get back in your jar. <laughs> so he was banished to the car, which was his pickle jar. And it was so funny. The dog, in protest, had turned the wipers on and then also somehow managed to turn the emergency flashers on, which was this tiny little button. Awesome. <laughs> I, I think if Border Collies had opposable thumbs, we would not be in charge yeah. anymore. <laughs> so I, great. I, uh, I had a dog that when he retired, d- discovered a <laughs> hobby, and he became um, a real geom- geometry um, student in his old age because he realized that while I wanted him to go around sheep, mm-hmm. it was much quicker <laughs> to run in a straight line right through the middle of them. Great. And yeah. Uh, I figured that was time probably not to take Taff to the sheep anymore when he had discovered <laughs> that trick. too smart. Yes. <laughs> what, why am I going around? I, I, you want me over there, right? I'm just going right through them. <laughs> That's good. Oh, man. Okay. What, is, okay. what is irrigated pasture? Is it ditches and flooding? Um, you've described sprinklers and ditches. Can we hear more about traditional irrigation methods that are still used, the benefits and the risks? Sure. So irrigated pasture is defined as pasture, which is irrigated through water. So, um, that can be done a whole host of different ways. Um, on our ranch, all of our irrigated pasture is, uh, oh, so pasture is, it's going to be a planted pasture field so um, you can plant it with natives you can plant it with non-natives but basically you till it and plant it and um, so there is some kind of seeding that's going to get done um, <coughs> typically um, ours is a flood irrigation um, we're in delta kind of lowland delta grounds and so um, we have uh, open ditch at the front with pipes that put the water into 60 foot checks. So every 60 feet, there's a berm of dirt and there's one pipe that feeds that 60 foot check. And we have a series of those that go for the stretch of the field and you irrigate in set sets. So you do like um, 12 pipes at a time, 16 pipes at a time, eight pipes at a time, depending on the length of the run and and those kind of things. So, um, and so it's a flood irrigation. So the water comes on, it shoots over the top, um, soaks into the ground and then goes into a drain. The drain then drains into a drain ditch and then that drain gets pumped back up and irrigates another field. So that's kind of our district is set up like that. And that's what our irrigated pasture is. Um, there's a whole host of ways to do it. Um, there are sprinkler sets. I know you, Dan, use K lines, which is like a sprinkler inside of a little, tiny tire like a little rtv type tire pod deal so it keeps livestock from breaking and then it has like a loose rubber hose that you can throw all over a pasture those are real handy for rough ground um so where you're in the foothills and kind of mountainy type areas you're able to throw those out all over the place and just kind of sprinkler stuff 
I've seen other places um, up in like the high desert country where if they have like a spring or some kind of water right, um, they'll actually take that and then through a series, of, they'll basically cut like a like a zigzag ditch kind of through the field and then they basically dam it up in spaces and then the water will back up and kind of flood down one spot and then flood down another spot and flood down another spot. A lot of times those don't, um, those springs don't finish anywhere. And so all you're doing is taking the existing spring and spreading it out over a little bigger area. Um, but there, there's a million, there's wheel sprinkler lines that, um, a lot of people in the Midwest are familiar with. Um, you could plant pasture under that. Typically the cost, yeah, the center pivot. So typically the cost of those are going to be, um, pretty, pretty counter, to being able to run just irrigated pasture off of it. Um, you're better off planting a corn crop or a, a hay crop um, in that region. And then a lot of times that region, you have to grow hay uh, in order to feed your livestock for the winter. So they um, put those center pivots in to make sure they can get the maximum tonnage off the smallest amount of acreage to feed their animals through the winter. Um, you also have wheel line sprinklers, which are basically a pipe with a bunch of wheels, like old-fashioned wagon wheels made out of metal. Those kind of like mechanized, they, they, they basically travel through the field at a pace. Um, you also have underlying drip, where underground drip, where they have these pressure systems that um, only irrigate the roots. Like there's a million different ways to do that, but it's a planted I've, pasture um, watered through some kind of method. I've seen the inline, uh, what do you call it? The one you just said. Wheel lines? <laughs> yes, the wheel lines here. I've not seen any pivots in California. I asked Brian why we don't see those, and he says it's because the land prices are too high, so you'd miss that corner on all four sides. Well, that's part of it. You see them, you see them up in like Sierra Valley and in mm. northeastern California. Um, I think part of it on pasture is that the returns on irrigated pasture are so low mm -hmm. that you can't afford the high tech irrigation yeah. systems if you're going to harvest it with livestock. Mm -hmm. So it's either flood, these movable pod systems, or you know, what we call hand line or wheel line that we see a lot of. And just to build on something that Ryan said, um, it is improved pasture. It, if you just take a piece of rangeland and, and put water on it, that's not irrigated pasture. Mm -hmm. It's it's planted to some improved species. Um and, and in our part of the world, our natives are not adapted to, to being irrigated in the summer either. So it's all improved species, fescues and orchard grass and clover and, and things like that. In the foothills, one of kind of the oldest ways of irrigating still may be um, one of the most efficient, and that's what we call wild flood. And it's kind of an adapted version of, of Ryan's irrigation system except we're just spilling waters out of a ditch at the top of the field and guiding it to the bottom of the field um, without checks, just using gravity to, mm -hmm. to feed that water. And there are some old timers where I am now that I swear can make water run uphill. <laughs> they can irrigate just with a shovel and, yeah. and a canvas ditch and they, can, they, can have, they have the most beautiful irrigated pasture. Yeah, it's really cool to see that because you basically, as the water comes down, you just build these little berms and areas with the shovel, basically. And that's kind of what I was trying to describe with that zigzag yeah. deal in the high desert where they just, you know, that water just kind of comes down and you get it to spread out as best you can. And it's really pretty, pretty amazing when they do that. Mm -hmm. So, but it's a, it's a, the other thing, your question on center pivots in California, it's the, yeah, it's the land value, but it's also the, um, the crop diversity. Mm. And um, the different m machines that need to get in for mm -hmm. the different crops and um, just the need to uh, more use all the acres. You know, you got to use all of these acres. And even the farmers in the Midwest, you see like uh, wheat on those corners and then corn in the centers. Or you'll see them use those, mm -hmm. maybe a dry land wheat variety or mm -hmm. something like that, or alfalfa. But they, they do use the corners. But in California, you know, where you can grow... Um, you can grow peppers in the corner. You can mm -hmm. grow all sorts of things. And so typically when you, and then you're putting a pretty big check into that ground and, um, with the diversity of crops, you can put a lot of that money to almond trees or something like that, where yeah. you can, it's a much better investment yeah. in California. Are there risks to, to what? Irrigated pasture. Are there risks to irrigated pasture? Dan, you want to answer that? You've probably seen some bad stuff. 
think it depends on how you define risk. You know, there's certainly um, can be risks of erosion. Um, there can be issues with water quality, with pathogen and, and nutrient um, transport across mm-hmm. those fields. And so managing kind of the end of the field, as, as Ryan said, where you've got a tailwater system that picks up that water, um, kind of how and when you irrigate is part of that. Because of all that, there's also regulatory risk with irrigated pasture. Mm. Um, so our part of the foothills had 100% of their water deliveries last year. There were parts of the Sacramento Valley um, that got zero water deliveries. And an irrigated pasture that doesn't get irrigated in July in California is no longer irrigated pasture. So there are financial risks of Mm -hmm. um, kind of an insecure water supply. Yeah, we, our district ran out of water last year for about 10 days, and we lost probably 20% of production off of the year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, was, it cost us huge, huge, huge money running out of water um, for just, a, I mean, 10 days. It was absolutely devastating. So I think the other risk with sheep, and I'm curious as to your thought on this, is that you've got to deal, you're probably going to get to deal with foot health issues on irrigated pasture, aren't you? Is that part of the risk? Uh, yeah, it is on mature sheep. Uh, like if you put on ewes on there, you will. Feeder lambs, they, you really don't see much problem. Sometimes the fine wools, purebred fine wools, you can have some issues. But generally, we have pretty minimal foot rot problems. But it's that you don't, you, you don't irrigate. We don't irrigate under the, under the livestock. That's like a yep. rule number one for us. Um, always make sure that livestock are on the driest fields. Of course, in the wintertime, it's difficult. But um you know, as you know, you we always you know you irrigate, and then you have rest, and then you graze, and so we have three to four field sets where you're getting that raise that 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 days of rest and dryness. Um, the other you mentioned about managing tailwater and things, um, and that and that is that is important. It's in, and, and I guess there's, there's like environmental risk implied with that. It's very important to know what you're doing, know what you're measuring. Um, it is difficult, though. Uh, we are in an urban area, and we, we, we're part of a district that measures all of our discharges and everything, and almost all of the violations are actually traced back to municipal um, spills, but they get blamed on agriculture. Um, but then if you actually do the tracing back, which we, we do in the organization, and thank gosh for that, um, that organization, um, it is uh, like 90% of the time it's somebody in their driveway um, dumping glyphosate down the drain um, hmm. in a gutter or something like that, or someone changing their oil. Yeah, there's just there's a lot of different things like that that end up causing the violations. But because you're a business that's uh, accountable to the to the state and the people, you get regulated. Whereas it's very difficult to go to like you can't find the address that <laughs> spilt the stuff. There's a you know there's a hundred thousand people in that town. Yep. And who knows who did it? And so yep. it's, it's very frustrating uh, at times, but that's um, that's water in California. And then you mentioned about water deliveries, and this could go on forever, but um, <laughs> that's for surface water deliveries. Groundwater in the state of California is just becoming regulated now. And the, so there's different rights to different waters. Anyway, that would be a fun conversation because California has a really unique set of water laws. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they're... There are some risks. But. And then there's risks with different, like, parasite problems. Um, like yeah, it's a different management and, for sure. When, yeah. you're, when you manage irrigated pasture, uh, it's, a, it's a completely different monster. Um, you have higher concentrations of animals, so your health risks all go up. Your parasite risks go up. Your ability to graze back pastures over and over again um, creates an environment that could be toxic. Um, foot mm-hmm. rot can get out. Of, a lot of things can get out of control on that. Yeah. And then it's also easy in irrigated pasture. Um, grass doesn't grow equally all days of the year. And so in your head, you may think you have good feed, um, because you're in the middle of summer, but it might be too hot and it might be too cold in the winter and your production just, it goes on a big up and down weave. And so Managing that feed volume is important. And then also the way you harvest that feed. If you take off too much, you hurt yourself. If you don't take off enough, you hurt yourself. And so it's just a different type of management. And you just have to, a lot of it's trial and error and talking to neighbors. And Jen, just one last thought on this question. Um, 
on our annual rangeland, our unirrigated grazing land in the foothills, it takes 16 acres to run a cow for a year. So 16 acres for five or six ewes for a year. On irrigated pasture, it's one acre per cow or one acre per five or six ewes. So the productivity is is quite a bit higher, but it, it does come with the cost mm -hmm. financially and otherwise. Cool. Okay, so this question is a spin off of that, but talking about dryland pasture, what are your recommendations for pasture seed mixes for dryland pasture for sheep? So Ryan's going to have some thoughts here. I'm, I'm of the opinion, at least in our annual rangelands, that it probably rarely pays to seed that rangelands by definition are going to keep growing feed. And so unless you've got an area that burned or that you need to um, get rid of a, a non-palatable invasive weed, it's pretty tough to make the case on rangeland that seeding pays. That said, it kind of, as we stay in extension, it depends on what your goals are, right? So what are you going to be grazing there? Is there a need to reestablish some native grasses, which are really hard to establish in our part of California? Um, kind of what, what are your goals for the particular piece of ground that, that you, you need to reseed for? But Ryan, you've had some experience in seeding um, some other things in kind of dry pasture um, to graze later in the year. Yeah, so it's very expensive when you're seeding, and so it needs to be combined with some kind of other benefit. We don't want to just seed ground. Um, we try to mirror ours to some kind of a compost application or something like that, which is also very expensive. But um, there's a lot of interest and support for that um, through um, different equip grants and different grants out there right now. And so um, there is an ability to kind of help utilize that. Um, when building a dry land seed strategy, you should look at the historical use of that dry land and kind of mirror that with similar varieties or a variety you you want. I mean, it's very easy to sit down into the book and say, I want bird's foot trefoil, I want uh, wheat, I want uh, peas, and I want... The, like, you go and you make your list, and then you throw it all out there, and one of the seven species grows because you put it in the wrong area at the wrong time with the wrong competitive plants. And so, um, like, I'd say simple and targeted is kind of the rule of thumb. Uh, barley jumps out of the ground really good in our area, um, and, and, it, and it's early. Uh, one of the most important things in our ground is something that's going to germinate and get up early that can outcompete the, the foxtail and, and bronco especially on stuff that is seen compost or biosolids or anything like that, some high nitrogen things. Um, so you need that. Um, the peas do okay, but they don't last past the first year. And so uh, you're kind of tossing your money away. Um, yeah, there is value in those. Um, some of the radish varieties that we've used, those are great. Um, I really like the daikon radish in our area because, it, but I like it because it opens up the ground, and so we're trying to kind of improve that deeper soil health beyond just where the disc is working and the compost application. We're trying to open up that topsoil a little deeper, and those roots help do that. Um, a safflower would do a similar thing. I mean, there's a lot of different plants that can kind of do that, and so it really depends on kind of what you want and what your goals are. Um, and so, I guess our our, our planting that we like to do is um, barley, uh, maybe a little ryegrass or wheat, um, depends on the prices to cheapen up the, the planting, and then a daikon radish, and that's pretty much all we need. So I'm, I, think, I think in our part of the world, in the foothills, a um, couple of things. Disturbing rangeland soils that haven't been farmed previously um, is a good recipe for getting invasive weeds, um, whether we add compost or not. And also in our part of the world, because we're a little bit hillier than, than some parts of where you are, at least Dixon, um, yeah. we can, if we don't get the seeding just right with some fast germinating plants, we can have some erosion once we get rain. I think that's the other thing in our part of the world is, is timing. You know, in, in a year like this, um, we didn't get a real germinating rain until November. 
And at that point, it's almost too cold and the days are almost too short to get much germination here. Where Ryan is, you probably could plant in November and be fine because you're going to be typically a little warmer than we are at that time of year. But timing is everything with doing that sort of stuff. Yeah, and I think that's that's kind of, to me, it reinforces that understanding of your area and getting something that's just germinating quickly. So it might not be the perfect nutritional complex for what you're trying to do on the pasture, but it, it gets out of the ground and it establishes something that's better than something else. So the barley is better than the foxtail and the bronco. And those two um, nasty little weeds, we want to kind of put pressure on them. You're never going to eliminate them. Um, the other thing that I forgot to mention, our area is pretty lush with bur clover. And so we tend to not need to plant a lot of fillery and bur Like if we were to put something um, seeding to a fillery, a bur clover would make a lot of sense. Those are very expensive seeds though. And we have so much of it naturally that we just kind of let it come. And then your grazing pattern is going to affect how things grow. So, And that's the last word in it. If you don't get the grazing right, doesn't matter what you plant. Amen. If you're not <laughs> grazing it right, you might as well just put dollar bills on the top of the bare soil and <laughs> let them fly let away. Them fly away. <laughs> um, because you'll, in a year or two, be back to bronco grass and foxtail if you're not not getting the grazing right. Cool. All right, let's jump to this one. Is there a way of sire testing without breaking the bank? Is there a way of sire testing? Yeah. Do you know any ways? <laughs> I think we should ask the veterinarian in the house yeah. that question. What do you think? So like breeding soundness exams? No, like uh, sourcing like what lambs were sired by what rams. Oh. So like sire matching. Gotcha. So trying to find what rams sired what lambs. Well, I guess you could do breeding groups, like single ram breeding groups, or... Uh, there's the markers that people use, but those <laughs> require a lot of labor to put those on, but that you could do different colors per ram. And then there's the parentage test, but that's... If, if you do different, I mean, I've seen they, they use those a lot and they seem pretty effective, the, mm -hmm. but then if 50% of the twins are sired by multiple rams, how do you know which, like if there, there would be multiple pates on the same ewe? Yeah. Mm -hmm. If she's running around in heat. And so, I mean, I would think that would be pretty challenging. Part of that would be a timing issue, right? If she's marked twice by different rams or multiple rams in the same cycle, that's one thing. If she's marked early in breeding season and then remarked 34 days later, yeah. that, you know. Yeah. But... So do you want do you go out and, and check the colors of the rumps of all your ewes during breeding season? You've got the labor for that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> so But that's a good idea. I mean, if, it depends on size, but yeah, that that would be good those markers. And then mm -hmm. also knowing your rams and like breeding ha like a lot of people breed half brothers or you try to buy specific sire lines. And so you'll have just this sire line will all be one color. So it might be 10 rams, but they're mm -hmm. all kind of half brothers. Mm -hmm. That would kind of help. And then you could cover more rams without having to just use one lamb on 25, one ram on 25 use. In a commercial setting, how important is, to, is it to know which ram sired which lamb? Um, it's, it's, uh, that's all relative. It depends. It depends. You guys are training me. <laughs> um, I, it depends on your goals and what you're trying to do. Um, I don't look a lot at that, um, because we're kind of trying to buy similar type genetics. So the, the Rams are all going to be fairly similar. And we haven't really identified that as a ability to increase our value. Um, by knowing that information, but depending on what your goals are and depending on the variety of your sheep and, and what you're trying to do, it could be everything. So I, I think it really does depend on your goals and what you want to do. Um, the other thing that's cool about ag and I think livestock in general is it's really an expression of your passions. And so if you're super into the genetic side of the world and like if you're we're good, if your other job was going to be a geneticist, um, well, just apply that to sheep herding and, you know, get into that side of the business because you can mm. improve a ton and get into it. So it's I asked you at lambing, 
how do you know? <laughs> and you looked at me like I was so dumb. <laughs> so great. I was like, how do you know which lambs were sired by your terminal rams? Do you? Oh, that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's because they're colored. Yeah. But not all terminal rams are colored, right? Like most are. Well, all ours are. Yes. All of yours yeah. are. Which is why I was like, do you keep them in super, like separate breeding groups? But you're like, no, they just have colored faces. Yeah. But yeah, yeah no, I'd asked because I'd just been at a place that had rams that weren't colored. And that was the problem they were having because yeah. it's hard to sell terminal rams that aren't colored because most people are identifying their terminal lambs <laughs> by the color on their faces. Yeah, that's the easiest way for sure. <laughs> I mean, you could just run them and lamb them separate. Like mm -hmm. I think last year we did all of our uh, mater we did all maternal bred ewes at one of the lambing camps and the other ones at the other. Mm -hmm. And that worked too, but um, that was more of a logistic thing on where the sheep were mm -hmm. coming up to lambing and mm -hmm. it was easier to <laughs> do that. And then it was such an easy lambing and Jesus had a hard time because he had all the yearlings <laughs> last year. I think he'd decided on, cause He's we like, had to, nope. we had to tag and we had to move <laughs> like seven, 800 ewes up to the other camp, but he take, took all the good ones. <laughs> he left me all the yearlings. <laughs> so payback, I go a little so. payback and, yeah. and fair enough. That's <laughs> off to him. I, I deserved it. So. Ask me that question in like, late March because we usually have put um, put different breeding groups with different rams okay. and this year in simplifying and downsizing we just ran one breeding group but with two different breeds of rams hmm. so I'm hoping I'll be able to t tell which ones have rabbit ears of the blue faced Lester and mm -hmm. which ones are smut faced like the Shropshire rams cool. oh, we'll see see yeah. if I'm smart enough to do that <laughs> cool yeah, in my way, you'd miss some, too, because there are some that will display recessive gene traits. And, you know, you might get a you might get a couple of real coarse wooled white face sheep that you just put in. But kind of gets to Dan's point about knowing the look of the different breeds and then mm -hmm. trying to identify that in the sheep themselves when you're, you know, like we tag we'll, we'll ear tag 100 percent of our ewe lambs at marking. Um, we do a bunch of them in the barn and then the rest at marking. And um, if it comes to weaning. I always go through either at weaning or even maybe 60 days after weaning, I'll go through and I'll sort out a handful of ewe lambs that we're not going to retain. And at that point, you can see kind of how the, how they've grown up, what their genetics look like, and that's a good chance to get out a handful of those. You don't get a lot of that, but you will have some in the more numbers. Mm -hmm. So it's a, just right. a statistics game. So, right. you know, it's, it's easy to get done on 10 sheep. It's hard to get done on 10,000. Yep. You dropped your water. He knocked it over. <laughs> yeah. Good. Cool. Well, that was it from all the folks out in the world. Well, good. Those are all the good questions. Yeah. <laughs> so. You guys had a question on the last episode. I thought it was funny. Oh, did we? What was it? What was it? I don't remember <laughs> recording. <laughs> Go back and listen again. I know. <laughs> it was a burning question, obviously. <laughs> We I move on. We record move on. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was interesting because I've heard other people say it too, where cattle will down the water compared to sheep where they won't. And so you guys were saying it seems like sheep on a per body weight basis consume less water than cattle do. And it's true. <laughs> hey. Hey, how about that? Every once in a while, we guess right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you were like, I wonder why. We should call Dr. Peshton anyway. So um, there's a number of reasons, but mostly it has to do with their metabolism is dif different. Okay. And that's why, you know, we say sheep are not small cows and goats are not sheep. They're not equivalent. They're different. Um, and they so like they metabolize drugs differently. They absorb drugs differently. All, so the metabolism is different. So number one, that's the main reason why they have different water requirements. Sheep and goats are better at um, kind of re reusing the water that they use, if that makes sense. So when they consume water, they're better at concentrating urine. They're better okay. at reabsorbing it out of their feces. So you notice they have tiny little fecal pellets, whereas cattle make these big wet pies <laughs> the ground I, I not i hadn't gotten my shit together that well <laughs> I didn't that. Oh, we, we, we have we have chucking parties where we throw them at each other so, yeah. like frisbees oh yeah yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> when cows get dehydrated, they could, they can get really dense. But. Don't ever use a pea shooter at, at Ryan's. <laughs> It's really funny. You take a rattle paddle and you use it as a baseball bat and you use the old dried out cow patty as the ball. Yeah. And then you just try to run and hide from the splatter. It's, it's good. It's a good game. Yeah. Amazing. Don't use a wet one, though. That'll be a mistake for the batter. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, man. We've lost funny. Dr. Bush. Yes. He's totally lost that's it. That's great. The other thing, too, is so cattle on dry feed after eating dry feed will need more water to wet that feed, whereas sheep and goats make more saliva per pound of body weight. So they don't also don't have that same thirst drive that cattle do. So there's a number of reasons. It's really interesting. But I've heard people with like have observed that and are like, well, with all these new water laws, like I'm just going to get rid of the cattle and only raise sheep. And it's interesting that, you know, like people observe it and then there's actual real physiological reasons why. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. I do know because we had all that rain and then we couldn't get to our water tanks mm -hmm. on our alfalfa. And um, I have my guy, two of my guys. So my main foreman, he got uh, surgery on his ankle, on his foot. And, um, and then... Uh, so we got a couple of guys kind of running those alfalfa bunches and it's kind of their first time doing it, trying it on their own. And um, they're doing a great job, but they were asking me, they're like, well, we can't get to the water. We got to get to the water. And I was like, dude, it's like, it's like 40 degrees, but it's just like soaking wet everything outside and look at the sheep. They're totally fine. And the tank of water, you know, it's been three days before we have been able to even fill it. And there's still like a quarter of a tank. Everything is okay. Cause there's just so much moisture in the field whereas if those were cattle it would be like you know we, we'd be running them all over the country trying to get water to them yeah and, and temperature has a lot to do it with it too sheep and goats are more tolerant to swings in temperature as far far as like water goes whereas cattle as soon as the temperature creeps up they need more water we put uh two water troughs out when i moved sheep on sunday last week and so they've been in this pasture now eight days, and I've not refilled either water trough. They've had enough mm -hmm. water in those troughs to make it through. Yeah. And it's been cool and, yeah. and that, but... Drinking it out of the air. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> They're air ferns. They're air ferns. I have noticed, like when you're up in the mountains um, with, with guys running sheep up there, that they'll go in water in the morning, and that's all the water they need for the day. They'll mm. be, you know, they'll water once and they'll be good, which... Um, you can't do with cattle yeah. in the mountains either. Yeah, that's cool. That'd be interesting to talk to the those herders about what they look for in the sheep on when they need water, when they don't, and when to push. You know, that's yeah. that would be a, that's such a that's one of those things that you learn by doing and is impossible to teach someone else without them living it. Yep. But mm -hmm. really interesting yep. behavioral information right yep. there. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Well, uh, this episode is going to come out next Wednesday, right between Christmas and New Year's. The last episode of 2022. Last episode <laughs> of 2022. And uh, so big thanks to all of the listeners. We really, really appreciate all you guys. It's been a lot of fun. Um, it's pretty amazing. Uh, we got like over 100,000 listens now in a ton of countries all over the world. And it's just so cool that... Um, we just started this on a little whim and, and have been able to kind of journey with everybody and, and, uh, learn. I've learned a lot. Oh man. Yeah. And, uh, I've learned a lot from the listeners and I learned a lot from Dan and, and Dr. Bush and just, this is, yeah, it's been super cool. So we wishing everybody a real super merry, happy Christmas, uh, happy Hanukkah, Chanukkah, Hanukkah, and, uh, happy new year to everybody. And, um, are you guys recording in January after the first, or are y'all taking a break for a week or so? We haven't talked. I'm gonna be in Hawaii. I ain't doing nothing. <laughs> so we're gonna call you. Um, call you about eight thirty California time to record. Yeah, no problem. It's all right. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> so look for our call. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to answer. You can call though. Absolutely. <laughs> they have the sleep mode. Yeah. 
Zoom. Do Zoom. Not, do not disturb. Activated. <laughs> 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 we'll probably record something that first week. I'm going to uh, New Mexico in January, which mm-hmm. should be fun. And uh, going, we'll be at ASI. Be at ASI. That's right. We got ASI. If you haven't got your tickets, ASI. We got a big event in Fort Worth, Texas here that. 17th, 18th, right in that time frame? I think it starts the 18th, yeah. 18th, 19th, 20th? <laughs> it's that Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and we'll all be in there around, and so say hi. We'll try to catch a recording in person there. That's always fun. Yeah. So. Cool. Right on. All right. Well, thank you, guys. This has been Sheep Stuff You Should Know. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Bye.